0: Truman Capote once wrote, I don't care at any basis about me, as long as it isn't true. But more times than not, it's the hidden truths that turn out to be the most interesting. I'm Jeffrey Davies, your host for As Long As It Isn't True, a literary podcast delving into some of literature's biggest scandals and controversies, both those well-known and those less remembered. Episode 2, The Black Marauder. That big, dark, hunky boy, the only one there huge enough for me, who had been hunching around over women, and whose name I had asked the minute I would come into the room, but no one told me, came over and was looking hard in my eyes, and it was Ted Hughes. So read an entry in the journal of American poet Sylvia Plath, dated February 26, 1956. The night before, she had met the man she would marry, the only man she believed to be her equal, and one of literature's most famous pairings began... Their marriage, however, was certainly more infamous. Until they separated in October 1962, Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes had only been married some 2,300 days more than 60 years ago. But speculation and investigation into their union, as well as the impact on their lives, mainly Sylvia's, continues today. Sylvia Plath was a writer and poet who is best remembered for her semi autobiographical novel, The Bell Jar, and her poetry collection, Ariel. The former was published under a pseudonym just a month before her death, and the latter was published posthumously in 1965. While she did publish and make a living as a writer while she was alive, Sylvia, like the best of artists, would become more famous in death. While her literary talent more than speaks for itself, it was her struggle with societal expectations for women of the mid-20th century and her battle with mental illness that would make her a cultural icon, the eternal Marilyn Monroe of English literature. Ted Hughes was also a poet. A man of British descent, he is still often ranked high among the best writers of the 20th century and among the best poetic voices of his generation. He and Sylvia were legally married from 1956 until her death by suicide at the age of 30 in 1963. Ted lived until 1998 when he died from complications of colon cancer at age 68. Ted might have lived longer and continued publishing to critical acclaim, but his legacy falls short of the cult following Sylvia's life and career continues to maintain. In theory, her marriage to Ted was brief and tragic, but Sylvia died in 1963, just eight days before Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique was first published. Coets so rarely become the largely beloved historical figure that Sylvia Plath became. But not every poet dies by suicide, just as women's writing is starting to be taken seriously in the wake of a newfound feminist uprising. Besides, they say there's always three sides to every story. His side, her side, and the truth.
1: Midnight cloaks the sultry grove. The black marauder, hauled by love on fluent haunches, keeps my speed. Behind snarled thickets of my eyes lurks the lithe one in dream's ambush. Bright, those claws that mar the flesh, and hungry, hungry, those taut thighs. His ardor snares me, lights the trees, and I run flaring in my skin. What lull, what cool can lap me in when burns and brands that yellow gaze?
0: This is an excerpt from the Sylvia Plath poem, Pursuit, estimated to been written between February 27th and 28th, 1956, two days after she met Ted Hughes for the first time. Scholars are divided on whether the poem is actually about Ted, since Sylvia once privately disclosed that it is just about the dark forces of lust but it's undeniable that Ted was the dark force of lust on her mind those February nights at her typewriter. Seven Februarys later, Sylvia would be dead. Sylvia and Ted met at Cambridge University in England. A graduate of Pembroke College, Ted was employed as a reader of fiction submissions at the film company J. Arthur Rank. Although he was no longer a student there, Ted still frequented Cambridge, socializing with friends who were studying and living on campus. That's how it came to pass that he was at a Cambridge party on that Saturday night in February 1956. Ted had joined some Cambridge friends in assembling a small literary magazine called St. Boltoff's Review. They were holding a launch party that night in dorm rooms at Falcon Yard, and Sylvia scored an invitation by buying a copy of the magazine from a cousin of one of the contributors. Sylvia and Ted both came to the party with other people, but that was no match for their attraction to each other. It began like something out of an indie film from the 2000s. Their eyes met from across the room as Sylvia began reciting the lines from one of Ted's poems, shouting over the music. You like, Ted shouted back, and the rest, they say, is history. After a brief conversation, Ted kissed Sylvia, hard with passion, so intensely that he ripped out her red hairband. Sylvia retaliated by immediately showing that she wasn't like the other girls, who would melt at the touch of a handsome poet. She bit him on the cheek, so hard that it drew blood. And with that, she left the party. She'd found what she'd come for. It wasn't a lie. Sylvia was not like the other girls. While she was taught to want the post-war suburban ideal that was fed to women of her era, she also wanted the life of an artist—to write, to live, to be. In fact, some scholars believe that Sylvia was quite sexually sophisticated for a woman of 23 in 1956, when she met Ted. Sadly, for 1950s America, this was not a dream that was culturally nurtured for women, nor commonly expressed. Sylvia spent most of her early life in the greater Boston area of Wellesley, at 26 Elmwood Road with her younger brother Warren and their mother, Aurelia. Their father, Otto Plath, had died just eight days after Sylvia's eighth birthday in 1940 from complications of untreated diabetes. Upon graduating high school in 1950, Sylvia won a scholarship to Smith College, a private women's liberal arts institution in Northampton, Massachusetts. It was sponsored by the writer Olive Higgins Prouty, who would become a lifelong mentor and confidant. There, Sylvia excelled academically and started finding her creative voice. In a now famous journal entry from this period, Sylvia wrote, "'What is my life for and what am I gonna do with it? I don't know and I'm afraid. I can never read all the books that I want. I can never be all the people that I want and live all the lives that I want. I can never train myself in all the skills that I want. And what do I want? I want to live and feel all the shades, tones, and variations of mental and physical experience possible in my life. And I am horribly limited." In 1953, the summer after her third year at Smith, Sylvia received a coveted spot in a guest editorship program at Mademoiselle magazine. She spent a month in New York City, where she was confronted with the harsh and limited realities of being a woman in post-war America. It was this experience that would largely inspire the plot of her only novel, The Bell Jar. Sylvia returned home to Wellesley depressed and distraught. She experienced periods of intense insomnia and developed a resistance to sleeping pills of the day. Now she was grappling with severe feelings of worthlessness, meaninglessness, and suicide. In July 1953, Sylvia began seeing psychotherapist Dr. J. Peter Thornton. After just a few sessions, he recommended treating her depression with a round of electroconvulsive therapy. ECT is a controversial treatment for mental illness that was common during Sylvia's lifetime. It involves electrically inducing generalized seizures to the patient, applied externally to their skull. It's doubtful whether the male Dr. Thornton would have prescribed the same treatment for a man Sylvia's age at the top of his class. To make matters worse sylvia's first round of ect administered under dr thornton's orders was botched she was not sedated during the procedure which among other side effects left her with full memory of the experience this was extremely painful and psychologically damaging for her to say the least just how sylvia wound up crawling into a dugout crawl space on her family home on august 24th where she planned to overdose on her mother's sleeping pills and die. The universe mercifully spared her when she vomited up the pills, but it would be two days before her brother Warren would hear her whimpers from under the house and rescue her. Sylvia was treated for her unsuccessful attempt on her life at McLean Hospital, a psychiatric facility in Belmont, Massachusetts. Her stay at the hospital was financially covered, once again, by Olive Higgins Prouty. During her five-month admission at McLean, Sylvia was treated again with multiple rounds of ECT, despite her reluctance. These rounds were administered by a female psychiatrist, one who better understood Sylvia's condition and with whom she formed a long-lasting bond, Dr. Ruth Buescher. Sylvia recovered by February 1954 and she returned to Smith, where she continued to excel and would finish her degree, graduating summa cum laude in 1955. Sylvia was a gifted student despite her struggle with mental illness. She had her pick at graduate schools, having been accepted in programs at Radcliffe, Oxford, and Columbia. She would ultimately accept a Fulbright Fellowship at Cambridge, a choice that would make her path cross with that of her Black Marauder. Sylvia and Ted wouldn't meet again for another month after that first taste of blood that one winter Saturday. They both wanted to play hard-to-get, even employing friends to act as go-betweens so as not to appear too eagerly interested in the other. That only lasted a few weeks before they were in each other's arms, practically all the time. Their attraction was so intense that, by May, Sylvia was writing home to her mother to say that she would love nothing more than to marry Ted. They announced their engagement on May 18th, and Sylvia's mother Aurelia came to visit and meet Ted soon thereafter. The wedding took place under a month later on June 16th in London. Years later, when asked why he married Sylvia, Ted responded, Because she asked me. Sylvia returned to her studies at Cambridge that fall while Ted took up work as a teacher. It would be only a year later, in June 1957, that they would decide to move to the United States. They settled in Northampton, where Sylvia began teaching at her alma mater, Smith College. Sylvia and Ted’s marriage had been cramped until this point, to say the least. In Cambridge, they’d shared a flat with other tenants, with so little room to breathe that the only place to write poetry was in bed. The Northampton apartment was no better, as they needed to share the dining room table as a desk. Sylvia pooled multiple jobs together while they lived in the States. In addition to teaching, she also sold poems here and there and worked as a receptionist in the psychiatric ward of the Massachusetts General Hospital. Among her duties was transcribing the dreams of patients. Having temporarily been a patient at MassGen during her breakdown earlier in the decade, Sylvia was fascinated by this line of work. Her job at the hospital is said to have inspired her short story, Johnny Panic and the Bible of Dreams, and she would later employ the same literary tone in The Bell Jar. Numerous portraits of Sylvia during this period paint her as Ted's long-suffering wife, as someone who needed to work tirelessly to make ends meet while he wrote poetry, taught the odd seminar, and was the subject of lustful glances from young women. But this is largely untrue. Whether Ted was faithful to her at this point seems pale in comparison to the rich literary life that Sylvia was building. She regularly attended poetry seminars given by the poet Robert Lowell, where she met and befriended fellow confessional poet Anne Sexton. It was Lowell who suggested that Sylvia could learn how to loosen up in her poetry by paying attention to Anne's work. So the two of them started exchanging notes on each other's poetry, an activity they were known to share over martinis at the Ritz. In her short memoir piece, The Barfly Ought to Sing, Anne recalled her friendship with Sylvia.
1: We would pile into the front seat of my old Ford, and I would drive quickly through the traffic to the Ritz. I would park illegally in a loading-only zone, telling them gaily, it's okay because we're only going to get loaded."
0: Sylvia had always intended to have children, even if some biographers attest that Ted never shared her need to reproduce. When she and Ted had left Cambridge and moved to the United States, Sylvia had told her mother that they wanted to get their writing persona established before they had kids. In what she thought was a strike for independence, Sylvia decided they shouldn't wait any longer to have children. Ted later told Sylvia's mother that he was overwhelmed with her sudden desire to have kids and that he thought she was sacrificing something deeply valuable to both of them. They began trying to conceive in 1959 and Sylvia became pregnant in July. Given the already cramped living quarters the couple had been dealing with since they moved to the US, Sylvia and Ted decided to return to England. The cost of living was less expensive there at the time, and work for writers was easier to come by. They left the U.S. just after Thanksgiving. Sylvia and Ted moved into their flat on Chalcott Square on February 1, 1960. On the 10th, Sylvia wrote home to share the exciting news that British publisher William Hindman had decided to publish her first poetry collection, The Colossus and Other Poems, just a week after receiving the manuscript. Ted, who had published a critically acclaimed collection of poetry three years earlier, in 1957, called The Hawk and the Rain, learned in March that the book had been chosen to receive the coveted Somerset Magnum Award. This award required the recipient to spend the prize money on travel in order to broaden his worldview. But travel wasn't exactly in the cards for the Hugheses in 1960, as Sylvia was now eight months pregnant. Their daughter, Frida Rebecca Hughes, was born on April 1st, 1960. Where the Colossus received lukewarm reviews upon publication, Ted was riding high. In addition to The Hawk and the Rain* now being an award winner in England, his new collection, Lupercal, was a subject of continued acclaim. Once again, Sylvia was left in the shadows of her husband's work, even if she herself might not have thought of it that way. Al Alvarez, an art critic for the London Observer, who visited the Hughes' flat on Chocolate Square in 1960, remembered Sylvia as being briskly American. Bright, clean, competent, like a young woman in a cookery advertisement. Friendly, and yet rather distant. In those days, Sylvia seemed defaced, the poet taking a back seat to the young mother and housewife, wrote Alvarez. And based on Sylvia's creative output during this period, This description, sadly, seems to be true. According to Diane Littlebrook, author of the biography, Her Husband, if Sylvia Plath had been hit by a bus during the time they lived in London, from February 1960 to September 1961, we would never have heard of her. Where Ted was wonderfully productive during those 19 months, Sylvia only wrote four of the poems that she would later select for publication in her collection, Ariel. But perhaps this isn't entirely true, since Sylvia was said to have finished the manuscript for what would become The Bell Jar by May 1961, but Ted is believed to have dissuaded her from doing anything with it. Additionally, Sylvia had suffered a miscarriage in February of that year. Pockets of this trauma can be found in poems like Parliament Hillfields. The round sky goes on mining its business. Your absence is inconspicuous. Nobody can tell what I lack. By the spring of 1961, after five years of marriage and the birth of a daughter, Sylvia had begun to outgrow her excellent education and began to investigate her most intense experiences as a female animal, wrote Middlebrook. Indeed, the four poems that Sylvia did complete while they lived on Chalcott Square, In Plaster, Tulips, Morning Song, and Zookeeper's Wife, are typically listed among the 20th century's best poetry. While she didn't live to see their success, these poems wrestled with a burning sense of feminism whose flames were beginning to grow by the onset of the 1960s. That same spring, Sylvia became pregnant with their second child. Needing more space once again, the couple decided to leave London for a house called Court Green in Devon. Sylvia had much on the horizon in addition to their second child. The Colossus was about to be published in the U.S., and she had just received a major literary grant to support the writing of a novel. Unbeknownst to everyone, that novel was already finished. Sylvia and Ted's son, Nicholas Hughes, was born on January 17, 1962. They had decided to rent out their flat on Chalcott Square, and it just so happened to be rented to a couple named David and Asia Wevel. They both worked as copywriters in advertising agencies, but David held literary aspirations. As such, they stayed in touch with the Huges after they had taken over their lease in September of 1961. They came to visit Sylvia and Ted at Court Green in May of 1962. David and Aesia were said to have made quite the handsome couple, with Aesia having been described as having Babylonian beauty. Sylvia recalled in letters to her former psychiatrist, Ruth Buescher, that she was suspicious of Ted and Aesia after that first weekend visit. "'It is the lying that kills me,' she wrote. "'I can face nasty truths, unpleasant facts. "'I am sure a possessive wife would have driven most men mad before this. "'But I just don't have the ability to care nothing about other women chasing Ted.'" He is very famous over here, and a real catch. Sylvia had been used to Ted attracting attention from other women throughout their marriage, and whether she was actually that possessive over him remains fiercely debated. But call it a woman's intuition that told her there was something more going on this time between her husband and the wife who had taken over their lease. Ted even wrote a rough draft of a poem that dated 1962, titled You Are the Sunlight, about a poet watching a beautiful woman swimming in a pool of sunlight. Let's just say that probably was not about the woman he was married to since she was busy with two children under the age of two. In June 1962, during a trip back to London, Ted attempted to see Asia at her office. When she wasn't there, he left her a note which read, I have come to see you despite all marriages. When Sylvia's mother came to visit them that summer, she told her that she believed Ted to have been unfaithful and that she wanted him out of the house. When Ted had fled to London on yet again another business trip during Aurelia's visit, Sylvia grew angry with revenge. She cleaned out any and all scrap paper she could find from Ted's study, along with a manuscript of her own, and burned them in a bonfire outside. Aurelia remembered seeing Sylvia ripping to shreds, what she believed to be the sequel to The Bell Jar. In London, Ted visited Asia and told her he was leaving Sylvia. Likewise, Asia had found she'd grown adrift from her own indecisive husband. She said she'd shown David the note that Ted had left at her office, and he didn't react at all. They spent an afternoon and evening at a hotel making love. When Asia returned home that night, she found David distraught with jealousy, and she felt guilted into staying with him. She kept in contact with Ted, despite the fact that the telephone at Court Green wasn't always working. Deciding that she didn't want to engage in an affair with him, Asia told Ted to return to his wife. But unsurprisingly, the Hughes' marriage was already beyond repair. In addition to her revenge bonfire, Sylvia had begun acting erratically while Ted was gone and had run their car off the road. She later admitted this was another deliberate attempt to end her life. By the end of the summer, Sylvia was writing home to say that she was looking to obtain a legal separation from Ted. However, she also booked a holiday for them in Ireland for September of 1962 and had told friends she was hoping to reconcile with him. Where Ted believes he and Sylvia had agreed to separate and he would accompany her to Ireland as a concession, he might not have actually conveyed that to his wife. A few days into their trip, Ted set off on his own and didn't return. When Sylvia returned to Court Green, there was a telegram from him waiting for her, saying that he might be back in about two weeks. In reality, Ted had abandoned Sylvia for another holiday in Spain with Asia Wevel. By the time he returned to England to officially move out of Cork Green, it was over a month later in October. Biographers differ on the reason why Ted left his marriage the way he did. Some say Sylvia had left him in a figurative chokehold and escaping to Spain was a trauma response, whereas others simply concur that he was a coward. The fall of 1962 is unanimously agreed to be the most productive period of Sylvia Plath's career. Raw from Ted's abandonment and the failure of their marriage, Sylvia composed some of her most famous poetry during this period. However, much of this productivity can be credited to her declining mental health. Alone taking care of an infant and a toddler, Sylvia began abusing sleeping pills again, and they again lost their efficacy. Sylvia's arguably most famous poem from this period would be Daddy which, of course, is about her unresolved feelings of abandonment from her father's death. But it's also about breaking free from needing a superior male figure in her life. The famous last line of the poem reads, "'Daddy, daddy, you bastard, I'm through.'" During this vulnerable time, Sylvia also sought words of wisdom and support by way of letters to older women in her life, such as psychiatrist Ruth Buescher and her former mentor, Olive Higgins Prouty. As she wrote to Olive during this period, I have never been so happy anywhere as writing at my huge desk in the blue dawns, all to myself, secret and quiet. While a volume of Sylvia's letters home to her mother were published posthumously in 1975 under the title Letters Home, it would only be in 2017 that two massive volumes of other letters sent over her life and career would appear. These volumes caused quite a stir in the literary community at the time, since it was the first concrete evidence that, by Sylvia's account, she had been physically abused by Ted Hughes. In a letter to Ruth Buescher, dated September 22, 1962, Sylvia wrote, Ted beat me up physically a couple days before my miscarriage. The baby I lost was due to be born on his birthday. In the same letter, she expressed her hopes that she and the children could spend the winter in Ireland and avoid the harsh weather at Court Green. But following Ted's abandonment of the family, this would not come to be. Sylvia finished the poems for her next book in early December 1962, and she had no intention of spending the winter at Court Green. Thus, she returned to London with the children, just in time for the cold weather to arrive. They moved into a flat at 23 Fitzroy Road, the building where William Butler Yeats had lived as a child. In January 1963, against her family's wishes, Sylvia published her one and only novel, The Bell Jar, in the UK under the pseudonym Victoria Lucas.
1: It was a queer, sultry summer, the summer they electrocuted the Rosenbergs, and I didn't know what I was doing in New York.
0: She had high hopes for the book's success in the United States, but soon learned that it had been rejected there by several major publishers. The criticisms were among that the book was less of a novel and more of a case history, and that nothing really traumatic happens to Esther Greenwood beyond a, quote, girl's encounter with the big city. These rejections stung Sylvia to her core, as it was American society she was critiquing most in The Bell Jar. Alanis Morissette might then call it ironic that the book would become one of the most widely read pieces of American literature in the 20th century. It didn't help that Sylvia's mental health was already steadily on its decline by this time. The winter of 62 and 63 was the coldest that England had seen in a hundred years. Her flat on Fitzroy Road did not have a telephone, a reoccurring fact about Sylvia's various living spaces, which made it difficult for her family and friends to check up on her. She had been consulting with her general practitioner, Dr. John Horder, who had prescribed her an antidepressant and made daily house calls to her flat to check on her. The most commonly told story of Sylvia's death consists of Dr. Horder unsuccessfully convincing her to be readmitted to a psychiatric hospital, and when that failed, he arranged for a live-in nurse. But according to the most recent and most comprehensive biography on Sylvia Plath, Red Comet by Heather Clark, Sylvia's decision to end her life was likely influenced by the fact that Dr. Hoarder had already arranged for her admission to a London institution, Hollywood Hospital, and the nurse that was supposed to arrive on the morning of February 11th wasn't there to take care of her, but rather to arrange her transport to the hospital. Sylvia had previously stated that she would sooner die than ever be committed again. She was believed to have been having terrible side effects from the antidepressant that Dr. Hoarder prescribed her, as her American doctors in 1953 had learned that this particular drug only increased her suicidal thoughts. Her neighbor, Trevor Thomas, remembered Sylvia's increasingly bizarre behavior over those last few days, with her telling him that she was going away for a long holiday, a long rest, a common 60s euphemism for seeking long-term mental health treatments. In her last recorded letter, dated February 4th, 1963, to Dr. Buescher, Sylvia said that she was appalled over the return of her madness, and that her worst fear was a mental hospital and lobotomies. Having known that Dr. Horder had arranged her admission to Hollywood Hospital on Monday, February 11th, Sylvia had tragically decided to take matters into her own hands. The last interaction she ever had is presumed to have been with her downstairs neighbor Trevor Thomas, whom she visited late the night before, asking for stamps. After assuring him she was fine and saying goodbye, Thomas noticed ten minutes later that she was still standing in the hallway, staring into the light. He expressed concern and wanted to contact her doctor, but she said, Oh no, please don't do that. I'm just having a marvelous dream, a most wonderful vision. mere hours later, after leaving milk and bread in her children's nursery, covering them with extra blankets, opening the window, and taping the edges of its door shut, Sylvia Plath committed suicide through carbon monoxide poisoning by laying her head in the oven. She was 30 years old and still legally married to Ted Hughes. As Heather Clark notes in her biography, on the same morning as Sylvia's suicide, the Beatles were across Regent's Park getting ready to arrive at Abbey Road Studios, where they would record their debut album. Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique would be published just eight days later. In many ways, Sylvia Plath's death coincided with the countercultural beginnings of the 1960s. Hughes was predictably devastated by the suicide of his wife. As he told his sister, Olwen, she asked me for help, as she so often has. I was the only person who could have helped her, and the only person so jaded by her states and demands that I could not recognize when she really needed it. But if you thought this tale ends with the tragic death of one Miss Sylvia Plath, think again. As you should remember, the literary fame and success that Sylvia achieved in her afterlife greatly overshadowed any that she'd experienced while she was alive. Some might explain this as the great and tragic irony of life, that only in death do we really appreciate artists for who they were. Some might also explain Sylvia's posthumous success as a patriarchal creation and manipulation at the hands of Ted Hughes and his sister, Olwen. Unfortunately, since they were still legally married at the time of her death, all of Sylvia's work was left in Ted's hands. Seeing the value that the world would come to see in the writing she'd left behind, Ted enlisted the help of his sister to become the literary agent and executor for the Sylvia Plath estate. The fact that Ted, the man who had cheated on Sylvia and abandoned her and their two young children, was left in charge of her life's work is bad enough. The difference is that Olwen Hughes was certainly no fan of Sylvia's, and the feeling was mutual. As Sylvia wrote to Dr. Buescher in the summer of 1962, I honestly think Ted's sister might be a virgin. She is beautiful, smart, but absolutely uncreative and cold. When Faber and Faber first published Sylvia's collection Ariel posthumously in the UK in 1965, Ted had taken it upon himself to remove or add poems that Sylvia hadn't originally included in the book. Despite continued feminist backlash to Ted's manipulation of Ariel and the subsequent posthumous collections Crossing the Water and Winter Trees, Ariel is still considered among some of the 20th century's best poetry. Feminists were still not impressed with Ted's involvement in both Sylvia's life and afterlife, and in 1988, her headstone in the Yorkshire Hills was defaced to remove Hughes from Sylvia Plath Hughes. Sylvia's original manuscript for Ariel, including handwritten notes, was published for the first time in 2004. While Ted's role in Sylvia's posthumous publications was scrutinized throughout the remainder of his life, Olwen's involvement in the patriarchal creation of Sylvia Plath as the ever-suffering female poet, the Marilyn Monroe of literature, has been significantly less examined. Journalist Janet Malcolm takes a deep dive into Owen's role as literary agent of the Plath estate in her book, The Silent Woman. According to her research, trouble began when Sylvia's legacy had reached the point of public interest by way of literary biographies. During Ted's lifetime, there were several mediocre Sylvia Plath biographies published, mostly by men, to little backlash. This changed when Anne Stevenson published Bitter Fame, A Life of Sylvia Plath, in 1989. Stevenson's attempt at digging deeper at Ted's role in Sylvia's decline was met with harsh and nasty reviews in the press, which, as Malcolm discovered, was brought to in part by Olwyn. In December 1989, Malcolm attempted to procure an interview with Ted in light of the recent biographical controversies. She received instead a lengthy rejection letter from Olwyn, where she describes at length what she believes to be the myth of Sylvia Plath.
1: People are monstrous, stupid and dishonest. If there is a bandwagon, the most unexpected people are only too happy to close down eyes, ears and brain and get on it. The myth was created by the following amalgam, Sylvia's own version of herself and her situation and of other situations after the separation. This was dictated by her paranoid mechanism or whatever was wrong with her, perfected in small ways over the years toward the end, her remarks about others were little more than lies, designed to elicit maximum sympathy and approval toward herself.
0: She also attempts to blame Sylvia's mother for the creation of this myth, writing that if Aurelia had just said that Sylvia suffered from mental illness despite her positive attributes, this myth would have never happened. But the myth of Sylvia Plath whatever that means, exists because of Ted and Olwen's own sense of shame that their newfound meal ticket, one of the most beloved names of 20th century literature, was mentally ill. This is evident by Olwen's remarks that Sylvia's situation after her separation was entirely her own making, and anything suggesting otherwise was a bid for attention. Linda Wagner-Martin, another biographer who published Sylvia Plath, A Literary Life in 1987, expressed similar difficulties with Olwen. She repeatedly responded to her later manuscripts with objections from Ted, who had a lot of demands for someone who had refused to be interviewed for the book.
1: When I began researching this book in 1982, I contacted Olwen Hughes, who was Literary Executor of the Sylvia Plath Estate. Olwen was initially cooperative and helped me in my research by answering questions herself and referring me to others who could be of assistance. As Olwen read the later chapters of the book, however, and particularly after she read a draft of the manuscript in 1986, her cooperation diminished substantially. Olwen wrote me at great length, usually in argument with my views about the life and development of Plath. Ted Hughes responded to a reading of the manuscript in draft form with suggestions for changes that filled 15 pages and would have meant a deletion of more than 15,000 words.
0: In addition to facing backlash from his involvement with the posthumous publication of Sylvia's poetry, Ted was also criticized for his handling of Sylvia's now famous journals. A volume of Sylvia's journals were first published in 1982, having been heavily edited by Ted. Two more notebooks were said to be in existence. He confessed to having burned the one with entries that led up to her death, wanting to spare their children from ever having to read them. The other one disappeared, so says Ted Hughes. When Janet Malcolm asked Anne Stevenson if she thought Ted only did what Olwen told him to do, she was skeptical. Ann described Ted as a very passive and shy man, so that theory is entirely possible. Whatever the case, Olwen retired as literary executor of the Sylvia Plath estate in the early 1990s, and Ted died from colon cancer in 1998. In a last-ditch effort to showcase his love and devotion towards Sylvia, before he died he published a poetry collection called Birthday Letters about their relationship, which reads just as shallow as it sounds. While Ted and Olwen's handling of Sylvia's work and death certainly had to do with maximizing profit, they were also vigilant because they clearly had something to hide. In the decades following Ted's death, an unabridged version of Sylvia's journals was published, unless we forget the two volumes of letters that single-handedly proved that Ted was emotionally and physically abusive towards Sylvia. Sylvia Plath was one of the most highly educated women of her generation, an academic superstar and perennial prize winner, wrote Heather Clark in Red Comet. She did not think of herself as a depressive. She considered herself strong, passionate, intelligent, determined, and brave, like a character in a D.H. Lawrence novel. Today, we recognize Sylvia Plath as being decades ahead of her time, her life cut tragically short just as a newfound feminist movement was brewing. While her life's work was gatekept for some years after she died, it's the passion that remains in her work that has kept dedicated fans and biographers always wanting to make sure she is seen and appreciated for who Sylvia Plath truly was. She might have been manipulated and taken advantage of by the men in her life, but Sylvia still knew a thing or two about power. As she wrote in her poem Lady Lazarus, composed in the final months of her life, I am only thirty, and like the cat, I have nine times to die. Thank you for listening to As Long As It Isn't True. This podcast is written, edited, produced, and narrated by Jeffrey Davies. Additional narrations were provided by Sharon Highland. Theme music is credited to Wendy Marchini, Elvin Vanguard, and Jules Gaia. A selected bibliography can be found in the episode description. If you enjoyed listening, be sure to tell your friends and follow us on Instagram at Literary Scandals. You can find more of my work on my website, JeffreyReads.com. Until next time, get cozy with a good look, and remember that all literature is gossip. Bye for now.